Yeah, I mean, again, we've done that with. Okay, hang on. The 1975 is calling. All right. Just a little landline there for you, Alex. I don't know if you could hear that. It's exciting stuff, isn't it? It's like the Smithsonian <laughs> dialing in. Rare artifact. Hi, everybody, and welcome to On Marketing, Starcom's podcast on marketing and media. Today, I'm thrilled to have one of my absolute favorite guests, Alex Heath, deputy editor at The Verge and author of The Command Line, his weekly newsletter about the tech industry's inside conversation, of which I'm a subscriber. So please, if you're interested, please uh, please subscribe. How's that going, by the way? It's going well, thanks, and thanks for subscribing. Yeah, I've been in it for about six months now, having a lot of fun, breaking some news. It's been fun, yeah. I think we literally last spoke like the day you yeah. launched or the day before. Or, yeah. I mean, it was in the same ballpark, right? Week it launched, yeah. So, And this is the week that it's now accessible on The Verge's website, and there's now a paywall on The Verge for the first time in the site's 10-plus year history. So kind of poetic that we're doing it again now. You just come to me with all your major monetization launches, yeah. and I'm happy to, you know, participate to our massive audience. <laughs> Alex, you are also our first repeat guest on on marketing. I know you're excited honored. by that. Honored, yeah. yeah. Your life will never be the same. No, it's it's an honor, really. I appreciate it. It's always fun to talk. So, welcome back. When we chatted six months ago, and I won't get into our annual predictions. We'll save those for the end of the year. I won't, but. Safe to say, I listened to it again the other day, and we've got some things we may need to re recover on our on our predictions from that pod. But in your opinion, what have been sort of the two or three biggest stories in tech since January? Since we talked in January, it's been just kind of an acceleration of a couple things. Obviously, AI is the is the main one that's hard to escape and pretty obvious that's only become bigger. I think we touched on it briefly in January, but the kind of crypto crackdown bubble being popped, whatever analogy you want to use. Right. I was kind of surprised at how much bigger that's gotten, how quickly, especially in like recent weeks with the SEC suing Coinbase and everyone else. So the crypto, I would, yeah, I would say generative AI continues to be huge. Although I do think the air is starting to come out of that a little bit. And crypto crackdown, those are two major ones. And then there's some recent stuff we'll get into with headsets and all that stuff. Let's get into AI just for a second. I have yeah. it sixed on the question list, but we're going to cover it right now. As is, you know, the stereotypical ebb and flow of these things, we get to super hype, which we certainly have achieved in AI, followed reasonably quickly by my calculations, like 6.2 days by, nah, are we sort of disappointed? The air is coming out. So when you say that, what do you mean by that? Because it's still clearly everywhere and on everybody's mind. It is, but I think there was a moment probably two-ish months ago where at least like in the tech circles that I'm in, right, at the people who work at these companies, it just felt like this uh, just – this once in a lifetime moment mm. that was only going to keep crescendoing and search was never going to be the same. You know, nothing was ever going to be the same. Right, right. Our whole lives have been re-architected by ChatGPT. And it turns out that like the technology is really cool, but things never move that quickly. I've kind of been doing this long enough to notice these hyped kind of news cycles that happen and how when it's hyped to that degree, it usually means that, you know, there is obviously longevity potential to it, but it's it's not going to be quite as amazing and huge as everyone thought in the moment. There's going to be, you can compare this to like Gartner has that multiple stages of like a, a technology's life cycle. And like, yep. I, I think we're kind of starting to get down into the trough of disillusionment a little bit, which is like, 
where the metaverse hell so has been and all this stuff. We're not there yet with AI, but I think we're starting to come down from the peak of expectations. Possible by Christmas. <laughs> the winter yeah. of AI's discontent. Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, I was at Google I.O., their their annual developer conference where they kind of was their first big answer to open AI and ChatGPT. And how are they going to re-architect search? Because everyone was suggesting ChatGPT means that search is going to change dramatically. And it turns out Google's answer is like a super limited beta that says we'll last till December. And then they're making no commitment on what happens after that. Only in the U.S. with like a very small percentage of their overall user base. Right. I'm in the beta. I've been using it. It's okay. It's not life-changing. Search is not. Like the core architecture and business model of search is not changing anytime soon. And Google is not going to be supplanted by Bing. You know, I although, think- although we did we did give Bing a heavy shout out six months ago. We did. And like they deserved it. They took a swing. But I think you can look at some of the third-party kind of like estimates of usage and it hasn't moved it at all. If anything, yeah. it's, it's flat to down. But, you know, obviously, ChatGPT is still huge. They released on iOS. I wouldn't be surprised if they're one of the most downloaded apps of the year. I still use it. I think it's great. I think the iOS app is really slick. But, you know, in terms of, like, immediately supplanting these huge entrenched tech platforms, it turns out, like, you don't do that overnight, no matter what happens. Funny thing about the people part of all this, they move at their pace. Yeah. And as somebody who sits in marketing... You know, that's the great vexing challenge of marketing is how do you move people at some different kind of pace when the, when they're not prone to it. Last week, Apple dove headlong into the headset space to, you know, some acclaim. You spent some time in command line. I think your last edition was sort of all focused on that or led with that. What are your observations of their entry and what do you think it means? Yeah, I got to try the Vision Pro as one of the lucky few. You know, Apple being Apple, it was it was an amazing demo, a highly scripted on Rails demo, but a but an impressive one nonetheless. And their presentation was very slick. I you know, I'd actually be curious to get your take on this. I thought the marketing and the way they positioned the device was a little strange and felt a little disconnected in parts. I noticed they were calling people users over and over in yeah. their Note, which I've never heard Apple do, which is very unappley. Very unappley. This is one of like the most appley and unappley product announcements of all time. Like it's a very weird Frankenstein kind of product slash announcement. But trying it, super impressive. Like right. you know, this thing is not going to be a huge device category for Apple anytime soon. I and others have heard they're going to sell maybe max a million of these, you know, the initial Vision Pro. So this is like early adopter developer kit, basically. But, you know, I, they had some impressive content demos in there. There was a there was an NBA courtside brief kind of shot where you're, you're sitting under the basket. And because the headset is so high res, it was the first experience like that where I was like, oh, I would actually maybe pay to like watch a game this way. And it's this headset is just comfortable enough, just light enough with the battery pack being off of it to, you know, realistically wear it for the length of a game. A lot of things they haven't figured out, you know, that front display that shows your eyes through it, uh, really kind of Black Mirror-esque, is not ready. That's why... Another thing I noticed was Tim Cook and none of the Apple executives were photographed wearing the thing, which is highly, yeah. highly unusual for a new yep. product category from Apple. I remember still Tim Cook proudly posing with the first Apple Watch. Yep. And it's because that front display is not done. So there's all these kind of core parts of the device that are not done until they ship it early next year. So in terms of what I was able to actually 
you know, judge that's done, it's impressive. You know, I compared it in my write-up for The Verge to, you know, for people who are have been longtime iPhone users, you remember, at least I do, still the jump from that iPhone 3GS to the iPhone 4 where they introduced the retina display. Right. I remember using a retina display for the first time and going, wow, like every other phone screen looks blurry after this. And that's it's a similar experience with the Vision Pro if you've used Meta's Quest or any of the other headsets. So they definitely stepped up there on the specs side of things. Here's my totally no inside knowledge guesstimate from 50,000 feet, the cheap seats. I think they know they've got a niche audience. I think they know that this is like 0.00001 version of something. I think that's why they made some decisions around it that I think aimed it more at a developer community or a super, super hyper early adopter, hence the user. Now, like I think they almost were deliberately trying to make it seem like, hey, you know, 53-year-old uh, woman who drives your kids to soccer and uses all the Apple stuff, like this is a hundred percent not for you kind of thing. I don't know. That's my speculation is that it, some of that was conscious. Well, yeah, but the main marketing footage of it that's now been memed kind of relentlessly is, is the woman, the kind of like... It well, is true. Well they didn't stick to it. <laughs> well yeah. That's why I'm saying about the marketing. It's like yeah. all over the place. It was a developer product at a developer conference, but the imagery is like you know, your high income earning, like late stage millennial, millennial, yeah, Apple-esque, like nothing around you, white couch, like it is kind of all over the place. And I think that reflects that they don't really know what this thing is for. And you could tell in the demo, it was a bunch of just like, wow, this looks cool. It's, they didn't have a killer app. They don't really, a lot of the, like, even just default apps that come on every iOS Apple device, I couldn't even use. So I don't think they really know what the thing is for. They know that this category is one they at least need to have a bet in and that they expect it to grow over time. And I, I agree. And Mark Zuckerberg certainly agrees. You know, I think the reason they're doing this at all is because Tim Cook, and I wrote this in command line, is Tim Cook is more excited about AR glasses, which you and I have also talked about, and yep. how this tech can eventually be miniaturized and the cost curve brought down to be in a pair of lightweight glasses like what I'm wearing now. And that may take 10 years, but when that yeah. happens, Cook, Zuck, all these, you know, big tech CEOs think that it could be a market that's smartphone size. And Cook's a numbers guy, and I think he likes that. And so that's, you know, if the headset does anything, it's, it at least gets developers building for this kind of a use case so that we can eventually get to that point. Yeah. And again, on the representations, again, I think they're you're right. They're trying to be too cute by half, splitting the baby, pick your favorite euphemism. They're trying to project some, oh, hey, and quote-unquote user, this is what you might look like in situ, but also we know we're not quite ready for that. It, there's a, definitely a schizophrenia to all that, but clearly I think they're, you know, they're laying down a marker around, we think there's a, a decade of, you know, long mission here, and, and we think there's a, an opportunity. Look, we waited forever for the television that never came. We waited for the car that still hasn't come. They actually came with this thing. So that must mean that they've made a relative put and take on where they see the market opportunity versus these other things we heard they were talking about forever. They've been working on this thing for eight years. I mean, this yeah. is one of the longest kind of gesticulating products that's been going on inside Apple that they had taken so long to ship. Like this is, you know, they do take time on things, but this length of time is unusual. And I think it reflects 
kind of how unsure and shifting they've been about it as a category internally and how to position it. It's a tricky category, right? Yeah. I mean, nobody's killed it. They certainly get points for some level of evolution on elegance, right? I mean, this is a step forward in elegance compared to some of the other devices. Definitely. It's got that Apple, you know, design step above. This is a marketing podcast, so I feel comfortable talking about this, but I just, I I think the audience appreciates this. Like they're really trying to have their cake and eat it too. They're trying to say we are separate from Meta and the Quest and the Metaverse. This is not the Metaverse. It's a VR headset. Like it is not AR glasses. It fully goes around your eyes. It can be hot. It's got fans. It's got a giant band. It's a headset. It is a VR headset. It's the nicest VR headset ever made, but it's a VR headset. And they're cheating when they talk about what they, you know, they want to call it spatial computing, but AR, VR. It's just video that they're feeding in of the world around you. So it's not reality. It's not your vision. It's Apple's vision. So the thing they nailed the best is honestly just the name of the thing because it is quite literally Apple's vision. Them trying to position this as like, we are not doing what Meta's doing. Yeah, you kind of are. You're just you're doing you're branding it differently. You're making you're doing stuff, your version, doing your version of it, which yep. may be the right version. But just don't pretend like this is something totally new. But that's what Apple does all the time. They're I was going to say that sort of DNA, right? That's yeah. Like my favorite is like I'm in the demo and they're showing the kind of high res avatars that you can do in FaceTime that they demoed, and they want to call them spatial personas. That's the company stamped name for avatars. I'm like, no one is going to call these spatial personas like. You're Apple, I get it, but just call them what they are. They're avatars. So there's just a bunch of stuff like that. I was like, you're trying to reinvent the wheel. Like, just embrace wow. it. Are we rebranding AI sentience? I mean, like, well, what are we... This was another thing, you know, yeah. being the audience at the keynote that I noticed is that they didn't use the word AI once. And they would frequently say machine learning. I don't even think they said large language model, but they're purposefully deciding to not jump on the AI hype wagon in terms of just using the word, the phrase, which is interesting. They're behind on AI. So that's part of it, I think. Right. I thought that was really interesting to see them not use it once. Whereas like Google, we did a, at The Verge, we do these like keynotes in 10 minute videos, like after a big tech keynote. And we just like compiled all the time. Sundar Pichai said AI at Google IO. And it was like three minutes long. <laughs> um, and it got me a bunch, but like the contrast from that to Apple was pretty, pretty stark. I thought. Hey, you're getting into, um, you know, advertising agency merger names territory. All right, let's move on a second, even though I do love talking about Apple. They're one of my favorite companies in the space. I'm a bit of a fanboy. Facebook slash Instagram slash Meta slash whatever new name you want to use. They're poised to launch a Twitter challenger. Where are they in that? When do we think it's happening? You know, what do they think the opportunity is? I think there's an opportunity. I can tell you that. What does that look like? They showed it off to employees recently, kind of confirming it broadly for the first time internally, at least. And I happen to be watching the uh, internal meeting. By the way, if you work at a big tech company and you want to let me in on your internal meeting, find me online and we'll we'll make it happen. And they showed off some screenshots of it, which I published. And it really just does look like Twitter. I mean, it's a text-based yep. with threads underneath. I think the name of it may be Threads. They haven't officially decided, but that's the working name. It is their answer to Twitter, as they called it in the meeting, kind of showing it off to everyone the other week. And they've been working on it for a little while, but not that long, really since January, which means they saw kind of what was happening with Elon and Twitter. Said, oh, let's do something here. And as you've been around for a while, Robert, like Facebook has had this obsession with 
trying to figure out how to have its version of Twitter over the years. I remember back in, gosh, this must have been like 2012 or so, they changed the feed to emphasize real-time news updates and public figures because Twitter was taking off, doing the IPO. Everyone thought this is the next big social network. So they've always been kind of reacting to Twitter on the edges, never in a really full-throated way. And this is going to be their biggest attempt yet as a standalone app, which if you're an observer of Facebook and Meta over the years like I am, you know they don't have a good track record of launching yeah, yeah. their own standalone apps and them working. I think they have higher hopes this time, not only because of the kind of feeling generally that there is an opening for a Twitter competitor, but because they're putting a concerted partnerships effort behind this, which is something that they don't always do for these standoff apps. So they are talking to celebrities, Oprah, the Chrissy Teigens of the world, et cetera, trying to get them on day one. I've heard potentially even writing checks, though they may not actually do that. And the other big thing is that it's going to be directly based off of Instagram, which I think will give it a huge leg up on day one. So basically, mm -hmm. you'll be able to take your Instagram profile, your followers, your content directly to the app and preload it on day one. And then there's a third element to this that is probably the most interesting that is kind of a flex and I can unpack why, is that this app is going to be integrated into ActivityPub, which is this decentralized social media protocol. I know that's a lot of words, but it's basically like email for social media. It's what Mastodon runs on, which is probably the biggest client of this protocol. So in the same way that you can email from Outlook to Gmail, you could use another social app and have your followers come with you to Mastodon, vice versa. So this app will be on that network. I think part of the pitch for Meta to celebrities getting on this app is like, or, you know, the Twitter power users of the world is like, look, like, even if we decide to shut this thing down, we're not going to like take all your data from you. Like, and I think tw Elon and has shown with Twitter that can happen, right? Even with a company as old and huge as Twitter is like, it could be bought by a billionaire and the next day your account could be gone because he decided. Yeah. He and so I think this is them saying, Meta saying, with our version of this, we're going to try to be the best experience possible on ActivityPub, but you can take everything with you and it's not stuck in our world. And so I think that's showing a sign of confidence, frankly, from them and how they think this bet could pan out. So in terms of they're not being locked in. But yeah, it's coming very soon. I wouldn't be surprised if it's out by mid-July at the latest. They're trying to rush it out. They see the opening and TBD on whether it will work. You know, I think Instagram has that kind of social graph, clout, user type of vibe that could theoretically capture a little bit of the Twitter energy. You've got a lot of the same politicians, celebrities, news outlets on Instagram now. So it may be the best shot yet at actually, you know, competing with Twitter. Nobody's going to convince me there isn't a huge opportunity because there's a lot of dissatisfaction just from a user perspective, right? I mean, it, lots of things don't work in Twitter now. I mean, forget the whole kind of whatever's happening from a speech angle just for the second and just talk about the way the thing works it's not fantastic and it certainly has degraded i think that's safe to say yeah i mean twitter's in this uh, messy stage where elon's stripping it to the studs and rebuilding it on the fly and it's yeah it's messy and so i do look forward to moving all my banking information into it though right Right. Yeah. Eventually he wants Twitter to send you your checks, which I just think. Absolutely. For sure. Yeah. Let's get rid of ADP. And yeah. Just have them run direct deposit. 
I think their next major launch will be job boards. So trying to take on LinkedIn there and tying that to verified organizations. I personally feel the opportunity to really take on Twitter for me is in LinkedIn. The social componentry from a messaging standpoint, from a microblogging standpoint, that part of LinkedIn really could use some juice in my view, and certainly a, a reskin, a redesign, a little bit of elegance, like all these. And I think that could really, because you've got a healthy chunk of sort of these elements of the Twitter audience are the commercial uses of information and updates and announcements and news and all that kind of stuff that sits in Twitter. And that to me, I think could have a, a corollary in a LinkedIn environment. But it, again, the current product there is not quite that in my view. I agree. I mean, I think Elon wants Twitter to be this super app, he calls it, where you can do a bunch of stuff and jobs is, you know, job boards will be kind of the first iteration of that. Eventually, I wouldn't be surprised if he lets you hail a autonomous Tesla taxi whenever that ships in 2040. But, you know, that's the idea. So we'll see if it works. Yeah, I'm going to sit tight on that too. Let's move along. Bit of a swerve for you here. What on earth is going on at Reddit? It's a tale as old as time. You have a platform that was very open, let developers build on top of it, build third-party apps. Sometimes you even use those apps or buy those apps to influence the main platform's direction. And then as you go up to an IPO, you realize, I need to have a scaled ads business. It's actually very hard to build that on top of uh, a system where you know, there's third-party developers who have millions of users and apps that I have no control over. I can't serve ads in. I don't know the audience. So you cut all that off as you're gearing up for an IPO. It's exactly what Twitter did, and it's what Reddit is doing now. So it's a repeat. And Reddit wants to IPO really badly. They wanted to do it before the pandemic. They're trying to do it this year. They're not profitable, which I think is kind of strange that they're wanting to IPO as they're not profitable because I think they'll get crushed in the public markets if that's the case. But nonetheless, they're trying to do it and trying to reorient the business and have it be self-sustaining. The new thing here that's different from how this played out at Twitter is that generative AI, large language model companies are scraping the internet. Companies like Reddit are really like the crown jewels of these data repositories that ChatGPT, all these things train on. And Reddit was giving this away for free, which is crazy to me. Right. Consider that Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, is a longtime Reddit board member until I think last year, and I think was briefly the CEO of Reddit at one point. I mean, they had no excuse to not see this coming and do this sooner. But their messaging, and I think this is honest, is that they're making these changes to their API, forcing third-party developers to pay up to access the Reddit user base because they're, they want their money from these AI companies that are training off of Reddit data. The problem is that I don't think they expected the, which is amazing to me, given it's Reddit, but they didn't expect the severe backlash they got from moderators of the biggest subreddits of users and of the developers like Apollo, which is the most popular Reddit client, third-party Reddit client, going, this pricing is ludicrous. It's going to kill parts of Reddit that we love kind of shows this tension of like Reddit is this very libertarian idea. It's this very like self-organizing bottom-up system where moderators are given all power and they're now losing that power 
And so we're seeing that play out where the CEO is having to come out and try to refute the reasons for why they're doing this. And I would say sticking his foot in his mouth, Steve Huffman a little bit, making it worse. But I, they're going to stay on the course here. Reddit, I don't think Reddit's going to back down. They have to do this. They have to shore up their data to have a scaled ad play to longer be, you know, feeding these third-party apps that are profitable while Reddit is not. This is capitalism, right? And like Reddit was kind of the anti-capitalist for better or worse, like kind of like Wild West for a while, but that's changing. Things like this are always interesting to me because you, you never quite know whether they're so deeply committed to a particular ethos and that that's what is keeping them from doing something because they know they've got like, they're going to have a reaction or whether they... I don't know, misread the tea leaves. I mean, I guess that's possible, but boy, it would be surprising. I mean, they're they're pretty sharp folks. It's going to be fascinating to see how this all plays out over the next over the next bit of time. Do they have they declared a timing around the the IPO? They haven't, but just the okay. rumors are that it's back half of this year is the hope. Okay. Yeah. Again, I just usually when companies are like going public and at this stage, it's because something to do with like stock options for employees. Like if they're not profitable and they're trying to go public in the year 2023, I don't see the strategy there. They haven't really articulated it publicly, but that's the rumor right now. Yeah. Or somebody who has a lot of money and it wants to... Wants to cash out. But like what what happens when you cash out and the stock drops 30% the first week, right? Yeah. There's a lot to worry about. Lots yeah. to worry about. All right, let's get two more, and then we'll do a uh, quick takes and faves. Anything cooking on regulation, or has like congressional dysfunction basically left us in a situation where nothing's going to pass? We're not going to get anywhere. You know, you and I had kind of danced around the idea that maybe, in theory, the two parties shared some common perspectives, maybe for different reasons on you know anything from you know teen protections to privacy to you know antitrust anything in between any inkling we're going to get any of that or you know are we just in chaos i don't think anything happens at the federal level that's been that nothing happens at the federal level you are seeing a lot of state-by-state action on kids safety it's really heating up in a big way I'll be very curious to see how like Roblox, Meta, uh, these companies kind of navigate this environment where it's becoming just anything kids is becoming too hot to even... One of the Dakotas banned TikTok or Wyoming or Montana. Yeah, one of the states just did... Somebody, right? Getting kids off of social media. That seems to be a big growing trend. I think antitrust is not going to be a thing for a while in terms of focus on that. Not much to, you know, Lena Khan's chagrin, but I think that's, I think the kids' safety stuff has really taken the the line. Yeah, where it is. So for the second half, what are the things you're kind of paying attention to? I'm really interested to see the hangover period of generative AI where, you know, we kind of realized like, oh, this is really cool tech, but like similar to crypto, like, what are the actual real world implications? There will be way more of them for AI than crypto. I'm not comparing them in that regard, but grappling with how much we hyped all this AI stuff in the back half of this year and how little it has actually changed the world relative to what we thought. And some of this like doom and gloom, we're all going to die from AI stuff kind of fading out of the day-to-day, I think, will kind of naturally happen just because we're not there yet. Like you talk to people who are actually building this stuff and we're nowhere close. So I I think that'll be interesting to watch. And then I'm not really expecting much on like the hardware side 
I mean, the Quest 3 will be Meta's answer to the Vision Pro. Not really. It's going to be mainstream $500 headset, but I, they are expecting that to be a pretty big product, sell millions of those. So the fall will be interesting for that. Just something bouncing around in my head. What's the state of San Francisco at the moment? As somebody who lives, obviously, 20 miles from New York, all I do is read stories about this, that, and supermarkets leaving and all this other. Does all that come to something in your observation or what is happening? you got the biggest tech employers in the Bay forcing employees to come back now. So Google, Meta, you know, reminding people like you've got to be in three days a week if you're you know designated into an office. So I think you will start to see energy come back. It depends how granular you want to be about San Francisco. If you're talking about downtown San Francisco, like Union Square type area, like, I don't know what happens there. That's rough. I mean, I don't know if you've walked around there recently. I'm going to be up there next week. Again, it's a rough place. So San Francisco's like local politics have always been hairy, to say the least. I saw some some stat that it's like over 30% of business leases are vacant right now in downtown San Francisco and it's climbing. You get out of there, kind of down into the bay, it's it's kind of like back to normal. I mean, especially yeah. as tech companies bring people back. San Francisco's death has been proclaimed many times over the years and it somehow hangs in there. It's not saying it couldn't be better. It could be much better, but I don't think it's going to be quite as apocalyptic as everyone thinks. Yeah, I mean, look, we do this with New York every now and then, right? It's the death of New York, the rebirth of New York, the collapse of New York, the fill in your favorite. San Francisco is one of the great cities of the world. I haven't been in a while, and it just does seem like things are, in my memory, you know, kind of the most up in the air and sort of complicated downtown. All right, take some faves. And what we've had to do here is we've had to write new ones because this is your second appearance, Alex. We are nothing if not thorough. Favorite vacation spot slash site of maybe your next big trip? Do you have anything coming up or, the you know, heading yeah. anywhere interesting? Yeah, we are planning to go to London and the south of France in early September. So very excited about that. Haven't been to London since like 2015. Very excited. London's still London. I'll tell you that. I, I was there February. Again, one of the great cities of the world. And I'll be in the south of France next week. So I'll let you Lucky know dog. what I see. Yeah. Although apparently we're in the process of doing a whole bunch of new strikes. So pretty excited about that too. Good time. Favorite restaurant in LA? Do you have one? Yeah, there's one that's pretty new that I just took a friend to that I love on the east side, kind of near the LA River. It's called Loretto. And it's kind of feels like you're in like Baja, Mexico, really amazing seafood, oysters, drinks. Loretto, love it. All right, put that on your list, everybody. In the spirit of uh, Mark Zuckerberg, I don't channel him ever, but in the spirit of Mark Zuckerberg, any big personal challenges planned? Are you hunting, you know... <laughs> I only eat what I kill. Are you hunting ram at the top of the Matterhorn or <laughs> what, what are we doing? I don't really think I'm going to be getting into MMA anytime soon. Uh, I don't like bruises. I admire Zuck for that, actually. I would think it would be really cool to try entering the World Series of Poker next year in Vegas. We'll see. Say that again. I, we're, I tell you what, Alex, this is why I love you. You're <laughs> literally giving, you are breaking news here on our humble well, I mean, that's a, that's a that's a goal. You said goal, so... But my job is to make it be like, go to gold, you know, from gold to news. I feel like now that I'm saying it on a podcast, I've got to give it a shot. Yeah. Do we need to crowdsource, you know, crowdfund <laughs> this effort? What is uh, the entry fee these days? 
That's a good question. Uh, it's not too bad, but yeah, ask me after my next like few sessions here in LA at the at the card room. Um, living on the West Coast long enough, and I'm like, oh, it should be, it could be fun to just pop over to there. Now, is the card room a legal gambling house, or is this? <laughs> yeah, a, this what? is not New York where you have to like meet a bouncer at the steps of a Chinatown walk up, which I have actually done, by the way. That's a whole nother story. I think next to Vegas, LA is probably the best place in North America for poker. So, all right, next time you're on. In takes and fades, you and I are going to exchange speakeasy stories in Manhattan because I've got a few myself. And I don't mean I don't mean like speakeasies that people go to tenement housing in the lower the lower east side where there's a dice game in the back. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, not that I've ever been. Let's be clear. <laughs> Best book you've read lately? Anything tickle your fancy? Traffic uh, by Ben Smith is a great kind of, and I kind of felt it was very nostalgic to read it. It's all about the kind of early New York digital media scene with like early Gawker and BuzzFeed, obviously. And I kind of came in towards the end of that moment, but was there enough to have the energy feeling. And it kind of brought that feeling back kind of being in Union Square and that energy. So I highly recommend that is also just like a crash course on like early digital media and how we got where we, you know, where we are today. Is it digital media focused or is it like yeah, cover sort of the first ninety nine spike? I mean, Ben was the first editor in chief of BuzzFeed News, so it's okay. really charting that kind of how BuzzFeed started and then everything that happened after. And also Gawker is an interesting other oh, sure. Sure. All right. That sounds really good. I'm very interested. I'm in. I'm going to read it. I'd be slightly more interested if it were going to go the whole way back to like Cosmo.com and kind of like <laughs> when I was there, but that we don't have to go that far back. But uh, that sounds like a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. I, it's it's an easy read too. It's it's fun. So Alex, you've successfully made it through your second hole on marketing appearance. I hope that it was just as interesting as the first one. And it's nice to do this and not be slightly hungover in a Las Vegas hotel room with you. Yeah, I was going to say having like complete clarity here has been nice. I cannot thank you enough. You are literally one of my absolute favorite guests. And I appreciate you being uh, so flexible about coming so on. That. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad the show's working out and you're having fun and have fun in can. Very I will. I tell you what, I will make sure to text you a few things from yeah. Ken, give you a few updates on how things are going and anything newsy. Sounds good. And that's it for another episode on marketing. Thanks again to Alex. He's just the best. I love having him on. Uh, remember, you can find us anywhere you find your pods. Smash that subscription button. Give us a like. Give us a comment. We love those. And we'll be back out to you very soon. Vive la France, I guess, maybe, is what we'll be talking about next. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks.